Antiquities are the one thing that can make its way from the ground in a conflict nation to Fifth Avenue in New York. Did you hear that? And you might wonder, how is that even possible? Well, it's because... Antiquity trafficking is big business, a booming global trade that continues to devastate the cultural heritage of countries around the world. And you might have guessed it. Yes, many of those artifacts come from... We see a lot of trafficking and looting in the Middle East, particularly countries like Syria and Yemen. But we also see countries like Egypt suffering from a major scourge of looting. And this is in part because Egyptian artifacts are so in demand and recognizable around the world. Hey guys, I'm Sami Zaydan and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. Let's get straight into it now then with our guest. Hello, Sami. I'm Dr. Vicky Kinoujiopoulou. I am a chief advisor at UNESCO for cultural diplomacy and cultural heritage studies and development. And I'm also an academic dean at Georgetown University in Qatar. So today I'm joining you from Qatar, right next to you. Right next to me. So I'm so happy about that. Thanks for coming, Vicky. All right. So according to the Clooney Foundation for Justice, the destruction, the plunder of the Middle East cultural heritage, it's being committed, they say, on a scale not seen since World War II. Is that an accurate characterization of what's going on? Unfortunately, it is. And wow. the reasons for it are actually quite varied, but unfortunately, it is. Well, what are the reasons? Why is this intensified? Well, one is conflict. The more conflicts we have around the world, and particularly in the MENA region, the more they attract interest in illicit trafficking of antiquities. And we've had plenty of those conflicts in the last decade here, haven't unfortunately, we? Unfortunately, unfortunately. But also political conditions. For instance, the Arab Spring brought also an unfortunate rise in trafficking of antiquities in the whole of the MENA region as well. Why? Yeah. Because of instability? Because of political instability and therefore the inability of governments to call in UNESCO or even their own armed forces to try and protect museums and cultural institutions. So where is the most looted country or part of the world in this region? I would say starting with Syria. Historically, Afghanistan has seen some pretty major damage. Yemen, definitely. Lebanon, now. So I would say it's between Syria, Yemen, Lebanon, which are the three most, let's say, inflicted and unaffected countries by illicit trafficking of antiquities. All right, it sounds quite big. Are we talking about some individuals stuffing stuff into a duffel bag or is this a big industry, a big business? Well, it's actually an industry. So let's backtrack a bit and think because we need to put it in context so that everyone understands what we're talking about. When we refer to illicit trafficking of antiquities, we basically refer to the illegal, inappropriate, immoral transfer of cultural property from the country of origin. And I want to emphasize the word illicit because we have actually made specific legislation at UNESCO. We have ratified and reviewed many different laws to actually reflect this idea. So illicit is harmful not only for the economy of a state or for the cultural property of the state, but it's harmful for the people, for the identity of a state. 
So what we tend to see is that there is a market, there is unfortunately a black market of antiquities that exists ever since humans occupied the earth. Because there Who, seems to be... Who's the buyer? There is a buyer. And, and when you think of illicit trafficking, you always have to think of supply and demand. We have basic business economic terms here. So there is a demand, therefore there is a supply. There are also what we call the source countries, so the countries rich in cultural properties, like many countries in the Middle East and the whole MENA region. And there are those that are the market countries, so they want antiquities. Before specific legislation, there were museums that were actually legally buying antiquities before the 1970, to be precise. After the 1970, with a specific UNESCO Convention on the Protection of Cultural Heritage, we actually have something as a benchmark so that we hold governments, countries, museums accountable for having bought illegally and illicitly cultural property. So museums can't buy illicit artifacts anymore? Not anymore. So who's the buyer? Private collectors. Private collectors, these are the big buyers. We Private actually... collectors got a lot of cash then because some estimates say this industry is worth billions. Yeah. These are people with deep pockets then. That <laughs> 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 they could have put in good use, but they chose to do something else instead. So we don't actually have an accurate estimate of the worth of trafficking of illicit cultural properties. We know that it is somewhere between 50 billion and 150 billion. So it depends on the area, the country, it depends on the type of antiquity that is stolen, it depends on where it was trafficked, where it ended up, so we have a lot of variables here. Wow. Do we have some broad characteristics for who are the main culprits? Are these like over-rich, bored businessmen at the end of their lives who want to impress their guests with chunks of Syria's or Afghanistan's heritage? I wish I had a specific criminal profile because that would allow us to actually go and arrest them, right? So the majority of the people, let's put it this way, in human nature, there is this great, I don't know, adoration, let's call it, of having something in your property, right? Acquiring something that could be either something from the past or something that nobody else has. Yeah, we all have that, but usually we do it with, I don't know, bags, shoes, watches, right? <laughs> not, not a piece of 3,000-year-old historical artifact. That's, Good point. Are taking a little bit too far? Good point. But again, here, if you look at the profile of those types of collectors, these are collectors that they want to have a specific item simply for their own collection. And these are actually items that don't make it to the surface again. So nobody knows where they are. And that is the problem. Mm. So the majority of the people that collect this sort of, that have an interest, let's say, to be involved in that as buyers, they would be, yes, very rich people with a keen interest and a very eclectic taste in what they want. So they never work directly with a the seller. They always work through middle people, through middlemen, right? So there is a whole network of criminal activity that When goes on. When you say network, I'm thinking now mafia types involved here? Yeah, organized crime. There is a hierarchy. There are the soldiers, there are the deputies, there are the heads of the soldiers. Are these like just artifact mafias or are the general organized crime networks that deal in everything else? So let's again put it in context. So what we know is that international traffic of antiquities 
in terms of its worth, almost the same as drugs and arms. Oh, wow. Okay, so the first profitable criminal activity in the world is human trafficking. The second one is arms and drugs. And unfortunately, in the recent years, cultural heritage also, illicit trafficking of cultural property has become equal the second most profitable criminal activity in the world. And so, is it the same gang that will deal in all three or do we have specialized gangs just for artifacts? I would say not just artifacts, it could be drug dealers involved in artifacts as well. It could be arms dealers involved in artifacts as well. So that's how it works. The ones that we have, I would say, that are maybe most interested in only trafficking antiquities exist, but not in such big scale because you need to have the network to be able to move things around, right? Well, how does the process actually work of smuggling? You said there's a network. Yeah. There's got to be people on the ground to get yes. them out. Yes, what we call the soldiers. So the soldiers, and that is like criminal organization, we call it. So the soldiers are the, actually the ones that go on site and they start digging up things, right? So they would dig up things. They would then inform the lieutenant that they found this. These like gangs have people that go out and dig looking for this stuff? Looking for stuff. If there is something particular that somebody wants, for instance, from Palmyra, but the majority of the people, the majority of the buyers, they want something specific. So they go and they ask the people on the ground to excavate it for them. Other people, they might be just people that they need to make, you know, more money. So they go to a dealer and they say, I found this. Can you sell it for me or can you push it in the black market? There are also those that decide and hold on here, you're going to be shocked. They want to sell on eBay and Facebook. Can I fall off my chair at this <laughs> Yes, you may. Ancient relics and antiques and treasures from the Middle East are being looted and trafficked of all places on Facebook. How do you flog this stuff on eBay and nobody notices? We do notice. That's why we make arrests. <laughs> Obviously, I've been using eBay and Facebook for the wrong things. <laughs> Just posting silly pictures of myself. All right, go on there. Yeah, I mean, there is a very interesting research that's happening now through Interpol as well, whereby we're monitoring social media to try and see how many people are trying to push illegal antiquities in the black market through social media. So it could be to retweet something that somebody found. It could be on eBay to actually put something on eBay and try and sell it. It could be Facebook as well. There are actually, how can I put it, groups on Facebook that they, within themselves, they try to traffic antiquities and, you know, illegally excavated objects in general. Oh, wow. That's like a Facebook group. Facebook is group, it? yeah. Like, but it's hey like. Hey, guys, the, I stole something. Do you want this? Yeah, but it's not as open as we would think, right? It's by invitation. I may be exaggerating a little bit there. <laughs> Where are the, like, border guards, the police, the, I don't know, customs agents? I mean, how is all this happening? We have actually policing, let's say. So the most important uh, force, police force in, that is involved in the, you know, in regulating and trying to arrest actually people in the illicit trafficking of antiquities is actually Interpol. So Interpol came up with a very, very interesting application that is called ID Art, whereby anybody can actually download this app from Interpol and whenever they see something that they think it was stolen or they see an excavation that's not supposed to happen or something was stolen from the house or museum, they can actually photograph it and send the photograph to Interpol. All right, that's Interpol. But what about government officials? Is there a level of collusion, corruption with... I mean, you know, corruption exists in all facets of society, right? It's not just mm -hmm. only government. But the important thing here 
is that we need to look at it from the point of view of legislation. So what legislation is in place to prevent even governments, if they are corrupt, to be engaged in the trafficking of antiquities. But legislation won't prevent them. If someone wants to be corrupt, they'll break the rules, right? Well, yeah, but then if they are arrested, they will actually go to jail. So that is huge. Does that happen often? It does happen often. And in fact, especially because of the trafficking that is happening in the MENA region with all these conflicts, we actually have even more ramifications to the stealing of cultural property and the trafficking of cultural property. All right. What are the main smuggling routes? So what has been published and is official and we know is some of them come through, for instance, Lebanon, Syria. We tend to see the route that goes out from Turkey into Europe. For Yemen and Oman, Afghanistan, Yemen, Oman, all this area, it goes through Turkey, again, out in Europe. So we tend to see the main bridge being Europe between Asia, Africa and America. Is it pretty much a one way? No, no, two ways. Properties that are stolen from America go through Europe as well and end up to big Asian markets. Asian collectors, for instance, yeah. Now, there have been some successes on the way. Let's listen into this report. The gold coffin, which is believed to have once held the mummy of Nejimonk, is now finding its way back to the Egyptian people after a seven-year investigation that spanned five countries. So are countries doing enough to return stolen artifacts? Yes, Could they do more? Absolutely, yes. How much is still out there? So let's say the global stolen artifacts, we presume it must be around 850,000 all around the globe. Wait a minute, you're talking units now? Units, yeah, objects that are stolen. And their value is? Do you have a... The value is anything from 50 billion to collectively to 150 billion. So we know that this much exists. We have about... 10% of those that are found and returned to the countries of origin. The problem is, if something that has been, uh, if something that has not been stolen recently, if they were stolen in the past, like before 1970, it's very difficult to have it returned to its country of origin because we did not have any laws for repatriation before the 1970s. Does that mean there's no legal obligation? There is a moral obligation. But no legal one. We're looking to make it a legal obligation. That's why we call it illicit. You see, that's why we change the wording to illicit because the moral obligation sometimes supersedes the the legal obligation. So what we're telling people, citizens, the world at large, we say don't only focus on the specific civic jurisdiction when you arrest someone. You have to consider it as an act of terrorism. So that's what we're trying to do now, and particularly in the Middle East, so that the trafficking now is an act of anti-terrorism. Right, I'm thinking now to what you said about anything that is dated before 1970s, a Mm. lot more difficult to get it returned. Yeah. Does that cover a lot of what is in some museums? Yes. Because you walk into museums and you see stuff that assumedly were taken during the colonial era by conquering armies. Absolutely. So this is my soft spot. I will talk about the marbles of the Parthenon, okay? People talk about them as Elgin marbles, which is the wrong term. Because if you define something per the name of the person that took it from the country of origin, you have officially give it ownership. So that's not what we need to do. So those marbles, those metops, the parts of the Parthenon, they were actually stolen by Lord Elgin. 
back in the beginning of the 1800s, he took them back to England with the excuse of, of wanting to study them and also saying that they cannot be protected because Greece at the time was not an independent state. It was under the Ottoman rule and most antiquities, they were completely left on their own, right? Completely mm-hmm. unpreserved and uh, there was no plan. So he took them back to the UK. He actually made them through the parliament. He created an act of law whereby now these monuments, they're no longer monuments that he has. They are actually property of the British people. So in that situation, you're just really relying on moral arguments, right? And some legal arguments as well. But for instance, a case like this is very difficult because Elgin had some sort of firm and some sort of paper that he claims to be, that he claimed to be the official paper from the authority in the Ottoman Empire that actually told him, yes, you can take them. But at the time, Greece was actually occupied by the Ottomans. So is this really a legal document? Does it have a legal value? That is to be debated. This is how an Indian TV host described it. Most of the mighty museums are playing ostrich. I'm talking about the big ones, like the British Museum in London, the Louvre in Paris, the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the Metropolitan in New York. They're all playing dumb. These museums have locked up the precious legacy of a million people and they reject all demands to return any of it. They consider these artifacts as spoils of war. She's quite critical of that mindset. Does she have a point? Well, here is where we need to start thinking about colonial museums and to what extent collections in museums that are very famous around the world are actually spoils of war. Is there no... I don't know, UNESCO convention or something to organize that? Before 1870? No. Before 1970, sorry. 1970, yeah, no. No. Why can there not be a convention to organize these artifacts before 1970? Why does it have to start in 1970? Because um, 1970 is when we have the official creation of the Convention of the Protection of Cultural Property. Yeah, that but defined, it can't be backdated? It can't well, cover- we do have some articles that actually backdated. We have one that, for example, that comes to us from 1899 when we have the very first interest, it's Article 27, and it's the very first interest in necessary steps that need to be taken in order not to destroy buildings of religious or cultural or historical value. That was, again, reviewed and ratified in 1907. And then we have a series of laws as well. We have the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property. We have a lot of laws that are there. Mm. But the problem is how... Can you convince within a legal framework that cultural property belongs to the people of the country of origin? Because the great argument of a museum space is why do we have museums around the world? To educate the public. So do we educate the public that lives only in the UK, in the case of the marbles of the Parthenon, or the public of Greece? So, and then you start talking about, you know, can we actually have uh, moving exhibitions that they travel around the world so that everybody can see those things? At the same time, people say, well, but that's not preserved appropriately. So you cannot do that. It's very complex. The the content 
the identity of the museum is very, very complex. That's why nowadays, for instance, everybody is looking not only in the exhibitions, they're looking at the building of the museum. So we're trying to move away from the model of the colonial age, which is the, you know, the facade of the British Museum, the facade of the Louvre Museum. And we're trying to move more to modern museum, like the Islamic Museum of Modern Art here. So let's talk about a couple of cases which have, they've got a lot of attention what happened to Iraqi artifacts after the US invasion in 2003, and what's been happening with Egyptian antiquities? Well, we're also trying to approach it. Now we have a new museum in Baghdad, the new archaeological museum in Baghdad. So now we're trying actually to find other museums like the British Museum. The British Museum actually hosted a quite big number of artifacts from the Baghdad Museum to try and safeguard it, right? So at the time, the then director of the Baghdad Museum, Dr. Donnie George, he was the one that initiated the British Museum and UNESCO to try and save antiquities from the museum because they were heavily looted. So now we're in the phase where the museum authorities were trying to get back antiquities that are currently the British Museum or it might be in other museums around the world. The same goes also with Lebanon. The same goes now we're trying to do with Yemen. We know, for instance, that between Yemen and Syria, we have Syria, we have about 40,000 artifacts, we presume, that have left Syria. And in Yemen, about 150,000 objects. Do we have a number or an estimate for Iraqi and Egyptian artifacts? About 30,000 that we think we know. 30,000 for both? For both, yeah. That we think that have actually left the country through smugglers and illegal routes. So this problem obviously involves a lot of big organizations and, can I say, big people. What can the little guys like us in the world do? So first, we need to have an understanding of why it is important to protect our cultural heritage. So it is important for our identity, right? It is important for future generations. Secondly, we need to provide opportunities for the people that come forward with something that they have found so that we give them the money instead of throwing it in the black market. We actually reward them for bringing it forward to a museum or to the police. It's a very complex issue, but this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I loved it. Thank you so much, Vicky. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in, guys. This episode was produced by Khaled Sultan, sound designed by George Wirr. Our engagement producer team is led by Ayal Malik, and our assistant engagement producer is Munira Dusari. And of course, Amr Saleh is our lead executive producer. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. Thanks for joining us, guys. Music